Let me ask you something. What is the relationship between technology and assessment practices in medical education? How do technologies of assessment influence relationships between trainees and medical education institutions? I'm Mario Veen, and in this episode we will discuss the article A Matter of Trust, Online Proctored Exams and the Integration of Technologies of Assessment in Medical Education by Tim Fons and Sven Schaapkens. This article is the ninth installment of the Philosophy in Medical Education series of the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine. It's open access, so you can read it for free. It will also be published as a book chapter in the edited volume that Anna Cianciolo and I are working on now, which is called Helping a Field See Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. In the article, Tim and Sven combine post-digital and post-phenomenology approaches to analyze online proctoring. Online proctoring services have become more prevalent during the COVID-19 pandemic as a means of continuing high-stakes invigilated examinations online. With criticisms about increased surveillance, discrimination and the outsourcing of control to commercial vendors, is this assessment simply moving exams online or are there more serious implications? What can this extreme example tell us about how our technologies of assessment influence relationships between trainees and medical education institutions? Their analysis provides an example of why it is important to stop and consider the holistic implications of introducing technological solutions in quotation marks. Tim Vance is a senior lecturer in clinical education at the University of Edinburgh. He is Deputy Program Director of the Online Master Clinical Education, Director of the International Edinburgh Summer School in Clinical Education, and also runs a course in post-digital society for the Edinburgh Futures Institute. Sven Schaapkens is a PhD candidate at the Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands. He studies reflection in practice in the Dutch General Practitioner Specialty Training. He holds a double master's degree in philosophy and media studies and has a master's degree in education of philosophy. My co-host today is Dr. Kamal Ta. Kamal is currently serving as Director of Medical Education, University Medical and Dental College of the University of Faisalabad in Pakistan. Her academic interest includes social media in medical education, technology-enhanced learning, curriculum development, professional identity formation and faculty development. Komal has won multiple grants and awards in the field and likes to explore medical education as an intersection between philosophy, medicine, art and comics. We're with quite an international group today. Komal from Pakistan, Sven from the Netherlands and Tim from the UK. Tim, could you start perhaps introducing yourself and telling us why you wanted to write this article? Happy to. Thanks very much for having me here. It's um, it's great to be on the podcast that I've listened to before and thought was really, really useful. Um, slightly daunted because I listened to some great ones, um, some great past episodes. So I am a senior lecturer in clinical education at the University of Edinburgh, and mostly I teach on a fully online master's in clinical education in the medical school. And so I teach um, healthcare practitioners, medics, dentists, nurses, vets, um, allied healthcare professionals 
who teach other clinicians and I try to um, help them learn about educational principles that will improve their teaching. I do some on-campus teaching as well and I run a, a, an international summer school in clinical education, do little bits of teaching in digital education and um, for the Edinburgh Futures Institute. All right, and how about you, Sven? Um, slightly different background than Tim. Um, I'm uh, 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 currently a PhD student at the Erasmus Medical Center um, in the uh, general practitioners department. And I, um, I do research there. Um, I research reflection in practice. Um, and, uh, and my background generally, uh, I've studied in Leiden, I've studied philosophy and literary theory. I've been a, uh, an academic teacher at the Maastricht University for a while. Um, I'm also uh, a guest teacher, so to say, in, a, in an art school in Tilburg, for instance. Uh, so uh, I, I kind of combine uh, the interest I have in teaching and as a teacher with, uh, with being a researcher and uh, trying to uh, understand what reflection means to uh, uh, doctors in training. Yeah, thanks. Komal, thank you so much for uh, wanting to be my co-host for this article. So can you introduce yourself a little bit and maybe just take over? <laughs> thank you so much, Mario. So my name is Komalata. I am Assistant Professor and Director of Medical Education at the University of Faisalabad in Faisalabad, Pakistan. And I basically work with curriculum development, assessment, and online teaching and learning and social media strategies. I teach both medical, dental, as well as allied health sciences. And I've had some experience with technology-enhanced learning and online teaching over the last two, three years also. So I thought this article was wonderful. It was uh, very, very apt according to the need of the day. So the first thing I want to know is that... Um, as we all introduced ourselves, Tim already has a vast background in online teaching and learning. And uh, Swen has also done some of the work and then he uh, learns through, teaches and learns philosophy also. So what was your main inspiration or your main idea behind uh, working on this particular concept? Any particular experience or anything you felt that about online proctoring exams? It's difficult always for me to remember the genesis of an idea. Um, and I think it was a negotiation between Sven and myself after Mario introduced us. Um, we thank you for that, Mario. It's been a great little collaboration and hopefully there'll be more to come. Um, online proctoring is something that was quite prominent in social media and blogs and, and newspapers. Um, and a lot of colleagues of mine across the world were concerned about the, the experiences that students were having and the effects that it might have on certain types of students, and particularly people who are already marginalised by exam culture and education systems. Um, so we wanted to take this opportunity um, to look more closely at what are, what are the ways in which this type of technology is embedded in medical education, not really as, as a way of focusing specifically on proctoring, but as an example that we might use to think about what is important when we're considering technologies of assessment more generally. Um, and nor, I suppose I, I come from outside a, the philosophy discipline. 
And when Mario invited me to do something that was um, in the vein of philosophy and medical education, it seemed like a great opportunity. And thankfully, he paired me up with Sven, who could actually add a bit of um, philosophical heft or, or authority or legitimacy or something um, to what I was doing. And between us, I think we, we had a look at what, what might we do here. And, and we, we gradually came to these twin perspectives of the post-digital and post-phenomenological perspectives that we could look at an exam that actually was probably a lot less contentious than some of the examples of online proctoring. Um, so that, and, and, and possibly looking at the least contentious aspect of that, which was the written component, so that we could have uh, an analysis that wasn't too caught up in all of the drama that was posted in news items and blog posts, etc. Does that sound fair to you, Sven? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with how you sketch out our process. I think would be nice. what would be nice to add is um, how we worked, because initially I... I have an interest as an academic in, in um, technology or philosophy of technology um, already. Um, I, I studied that a bit, uh, work of Heidegger in technology um, during my studies. So in that regard, I'm interested. But proctoring technology as such, that, that came, sort of a, came up as a topic um, in the conversations I had with Tim, and, uh, and uh, in that regard, uh, yeah, how we work together, um, the article um, sort of came to fruition because we, we spoke and tried to understand this technology and tried to understand both perspectives and how they relate to this particular technology. And, uh, and that is, yeah, that, that's where the work sort of originated in, in the conversations between the two of us speaking about how this philosophy relates to the technology and perhaps also vice versa. That's wonderful. And um, the fact that you've used two approaches that both of you can actually work with, that's the post-phenomenology and post-digital perspectives. And then coming to, combining that together to discuss about something about online proctored exams and integration of technology as a whole in medical education, that's actually very commendable. So I have a question about um, as assessment also promotes or at times it can inhibit professional identity. How do you think that using a post-digital approach is going to explore uh, the professional identity element that assessment is going to promote? So for me, um, and Sven can come in whenever you like <laughs> to, to correct me, um, but at a simple level, the concept of post-digital is really a refusal to separate digital aspects of interactions from material and social activity. So computers and phones and devices and interfaces are always social and material, and they're always integrated in a complex context. The effects of technology and education are tangled up in history, politics, culture, infrastructure, etc. So at one level, the concept of post-digital is only relevant where there's a clear role for digital technology. Um, but on the surface, it, th that happens more than we think it does. So on the surface, it, it might not seem like you would analyze traditional exam halls um, or a paper-based exam through a post-digital analysis, but actually you could do that because digital technology is so embedded in learning activity that it's almost inconceivable 
that candidates wouldn't use devices and the internet um, to at least prepare for the exam. So that's part of how I see the post-digital, that we need to look beyond the immediate moment, such as during the exam, um, to how the digital, social and material activity are in play before, during and after whichever moment we're focusing on. And so the fact that we can think, look things up on the internet is a shaping influence on what we value in assessment, even if the act of looking up doesn't actually happen, if you see what I mean. So you can see that in discourse around whether it's still appropriate to examine the retention of facts, given that people can Google things um, in professional practice, for example. So becoming uh, by becoming part of the cultural landscape of assessment, for me, digital technology shapes the kinds of knowledge and performance and the traits and identities that are valued within a profession, even when devices or the internet, for example, are prohibited. And so the post-digital for me is about tracing relations and entanglements in order to see the subtle effects of the integration of technology in its context, even when technology isn't the focus. So technology is always and has always been embedded in assessment practices, even if that's not kind of high-tech technology. Um, and we, in the paper, we argue that it shouldn't be seen as neutral, but as deeply entangled in like meaningful and value-laden activity, I guess. Sorry, that's a bit of a that was a bit of a monologue. Sven, do you want to add anything to that? No, it's 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 okay. I, I like that you use the word uh, the words entanglement or shaping, because that's kind of also where I see the relation with the post-phenomenological angle. Um, I would refer to work by, for instance, Peter Balverbeek, who's a philosopher of technology at the Twente University here in the Netherlands, um, and uh, Don Eide, um, he, uh, uh, Peter Balverbeek and, and Don Eide are kind of important this, in this respect. And, um, and, and the shaping is exactly what is, what is happening here in that the, the phenomenological take, so to say, is trying to get rid of the very naive idea that we sometimes have about technology. Like um, we have designed this thing it, it can be a phone or whatever and uh, and then it does what we intended it to do and the phenomenologists will try to entangle that sort of prejudice and will try to see how um, that technology actually mediates how people relate to the world or how the world can sort of um, be made available for the person using the technology and and um, this is what they what they also call this is mediation uh, role of technology. Um, and in its mediation, it is not a sort of neutral thing in the sense it's not just an object that, you know, does what it does because we designed it as such. Um, what the feminologists will try to do is is see these entanglements and and try to understand how 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 this this, this sort of center position between world and man, is taken up by technology and is shaped. So a simple a simple um, example would be, um, for instance, if you take up a phone, okay, I have it to call people, but currently that's not exactly what happens because rather the, the phone is sort of bringing this whole world into your pocket um, and it does so much more than just, you know, receiving and taking calls. And uh, we have become available through this phone through the world and, um, and it's, 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 for instance, hard to switch off. And those things were not per se 
preconceived in the design of the phone back in the day, but it, it developed in a kind of instrument that does way more than you might naively think for, I have a phone to call or um, I have a phone to use the internet with, for instance. That is true. I think I agree with uh, what you're saying, Swain, and also uh, Tim gave a very interesting perspective about post-digital uh, work that uh, the framework that not just during the assessment, but because we're so entangled with technology that post-digitalism has to you know, be studied throughout the spectrum as how it's affecting the person, obviously during preparation and even post the actual exam. So when we treat assessment uh, according to these two perspectives, so we see it more in the article also, you mentioned that it's more uh, as a gray area, not you know, as a completely objective thing when you see it with in relation to everything else and how it's entangled with everybody. So how would you um, factor high stake assessments, like completely objective assessments, like licensing exams? And you've given the example of the MRCP. So examinations like the USMLE, the MRCP, which are taken over a broad context over many different cultures, and they are usually proctored online or they're, they're given online. So how would you factor those exams in these perspectives? So I, I guess my, the first thing I would say is that we were a bit wary when we were working on this of trying to answer any kind of what should we do questions in favour of what can we learn. Um, so we didn't want to suggest that we actually knew how to, how to design redesign, you know, assessment and rebuild assessment cultures. Um, but we did want to see how can the perspectives that we're taking help us to understand what's at stake here and the issues that we should reflect on when we're making decisions about assessment and technology. And very high stakes international exams have particular political, historical, cultural and economic roots that have implications for how new technology can be brought in. So. There's political pressure um, for these examinations to be seen as an objective, and there are entrenched values in play, such as a particular view of equality as fairness, I think, um, and therefore a pressure to standardise and control. But that pressure is rooted in a particular history within many educa uh, medical education contexts of normative individualistic approaches to summative assessment and a an idealized model of the medical student or practitioner that we can see in competency frameworks and the, the very idea that we need controlled testing environments. So these kinds of examinations, as they're currently designed and run, they fit into our equation as things that need to be interrogated in relation to what we see as an ultimately false representation of objectivity. And if these exams are not objective after all, then what does it mean to use technology like remote proctoring in an attempt to continue the standardization of conditions? And what can we learn from the ways in which these settings like the exam hall and the re remote proctored space, bedrooms, kitchens, whatever, um, to produce different experiences for different candidates? Okay, yeah, I think uh, that's quite explaining the concept going on in the paper and the line of reasoning that you've adopted. So I'd like to ask Swen to start this one, that um, what do you think that uh, when you're exploring all these relations and obviously you've uh, done work on uh, 
huge cohort. Uh, do you think the concepts of fair play and trust, they are different or they're portrayed different uh, while exploring through these perspectives of post-phenomenology and the post-digital framework? as compared to the conventional concepts that were given of proctoring or online examination or even written examination? Mm. So, yeah, we, we added a part on trust um, in relation to also a sort of, let's say, an, an, a material type of trust that is necessary. And this is where that previous um, little discourse we had about objectivity and neutrality comes in. So the um, problem with trust that we try to tackle is that initially you think, okay, trust is something that uh, we have between, you know, two people or three people or, or generally people who are um, aware of what they're doing and who are in sort of control of their actions. And then I trust that you will do your job or do whatever you will do. And um, we try to argue um, that also the technologies in a way um, will demand a certain trust, but that is sometimes sadly overlooked. So for instance, the fact that I just, um, uh, we, we use the um, example of a climbing rope. Um, uh, I for a second, I for I've forgotten the author, that's very bad of me, but um, I'll look it up. Could be in the show notes or definitely mentioned in the article, but, um, the example is that um, um, you, as a novice climber, um, are trying to climb these mountains. And the problem is, is that you have to learn to, so to say, forget that you're hanging off a rope. You have to trust that it will hold you when you fall from the wall. And this trust is a kind of getting used to the fact that the thing that you're working with will work. Um, and this trust is very comes very natural to us. So after a while, a novice climber will forget, so to say, he will trust that the rope will hold him. Now, there's that's a good thing, right? Because um, um, the argument here is that um, a climber needs to um, be aware of so many things that he can't just think about the, the rope all the time. He needs to just let that go so that he can focus on placing his hands and his feet. Now, um, that is positive, right? Because uh, the world is very demanding. Um, however, if we kind of start to trust technologies and also forget how they function, then we ask the question, how, how should we trust them? So in the, in the case of the, um, te the proctoring technology, um, various parties need to trust that it functions. But there is a whole kind of mechanic behind it that needs to be in place in order to function. So uh, as far as we understood, students or people who are uh, taking these exams, they will forget at some point, or there's a likeliness that they will forget that they are taped and that they could just, you know, make the exam. But um, this whole issue of trying to instill trust in this technology requires this whole kind of world that needs to be built around this, this exam. For instance, um, sanitizing your room, so to say, uh, making sure that no one will enter, that you have a stable connection and so forth and so forth. So um, um, this is a sharp contrast with trusting, for instance, the exam hall where you could say you're also um, proctored in a way, but when you, when you walk into an exam hall and there are people sort of surveying you, 
there's um, also a sort of staged environment, but in this case, the trust is in the fact that, okay, there, there, there is a, a little less technology involved in order for you to do your business. And, and that, is, that is a striking difference. Although um, we saw that um, there is a sort of equivalence being suggested between the exam hall which can be trusted as as if you would you know walk into an exam hall it will will be sort of the same as if you would be um you know taking an exam at home with the proctor technology but these two situations of trusting that the thing will work are completely different uh, and in the case of the proctoring exam um, a lot of the responsibility for it to work also falls a bit on you uh, and um, the responsibility for it to work also falls on the proctors themselves and the technology themselves. So there's more, so to say, stakes and perspectives and, and parties involved in order for this uh, quote unquote simple exam to function. Um, uh, I don't know if Tim, uh, if you have something to add here, but. Just that um, the, the, what you're talking about there, Sven, it, it's, it includes the introduction of more trust relations, I think, because there's a there's a third party company that sort of intervenes, which means that there needs to be trust between the medical institution and the proctoring company. There needs to be trust between the medical institution, and the medical students, and there needs to be trust between the medical students and the proctoring company. But actually, in order to create value, the proctoring, it's in the proctoring company's interests to make it seem like students can't be trusted by medical institutions, that online cheating is a big problem. And that's why there needs to be some sort of quite radical intervention. And so built into this is a, is a kind of undermining of trust by the third party. Um, and you can see this in, in lots of discourse about online cheating becoming a, a greater problem now whether it is or isn't it's fed into by commercial agendas which which have at the root of them the undermining of the trust between students and institutions um so when we're thinking about what it is that we value in graduates and students and and exam candidates we need to really think about um how the process of, of assessment and the process of building and maintaining trust relations is important to the values that we hold for the professionals that we want to engender. Thank you. Thank you, Swen and Tim. I think that's uh, clarifying the point in the article further about how you will trust relationships as well as neutrality. So um, basically the court that you examined were MRCP uh, exam givers or students. Do you think that uh, in the article, you've also mentioned that the online proctoring exam, it's not just an exam in which uh, we're just considering normal cheating. We're actually considering the whole body mechanics as well as the environment of the student and they feel more restricted in that. So students who are more used to studying online or who've taken courses completely online, Tim, since you also have experience with this, do you think that uh, their culture or contextual dynamic might be different in an online proctoring exam. So Sven already mentioned the notion of being able to forget about um, what's going on. And, and so yeah. if you are used to um, this kind of technological setup or if you've done 
online proctored exams before, then it will probably be a bit easier to navigate and to know where the bounds are and, and possibly to forget that you're being monitored, which is a good thing for your your ability to focus on the exam, but it could also be interrupted because the way that the proctoring um, software is set up is that it will sometimes flag things that are inappropriate. So you could imagine a scenario where you you sort of looked up into space and would were, were I'm not sure if that would have happened in this particular case, so it's a hypothetical, but yeah. um, but that you could sort of look up into space and be brought back crashing down to this proctored reality because it it tells you that that's something that is associated with forms of cheating because you might be looking at a resource off screen. So whether or not that's a real example, it's the sort of thing where the system itself could interfere with its own transparency by um, reminding you that you're being proctored because you forgot. Is that Sven can probably re-explain that better than I just did. Well, the the issue here is that um, that the technology provides you with a certain world, um, and that this world, in a way, is not um, immediately or directly available. It needs to be kind of, um, let's say, interpreted by those who are using it. And um, this is also an issue where technology can convey that it is more objective because it just presents you with a sort of technological reality or a kind of, you know, fact these, these students have cheated and these have done the right thing. But there is data that needs to be generated and this data needs to be um, interpreted. So the simple example, not a proctor example, but um, the simple example is the thermometer uh, in the sense that... Um, we have a sort of bodily experience of the world around us and how warm it is. And then we read, um, for instance, our thermometer and say, oh, it's five degrees now. But that saying that it is five degrees and knowing what that feels like, that implies a whole sort of structure of interpretation that is sort of wedded with this particular technology. Um, you know kind of the scales and there's this, uh, almost an immediate but still present interpretation of that data that five degrees okay it's not freezing um but it is a bit chilly still um i will need a winter coat and um it's not the a, a sort of you could say it's a technological fact that it is five degrees but you know understanding what that means um for how you go about doing your business requires a kind of reading of the technology uh, and in that regard, the same will happen with proctor technology. It will record you in whatever way the proctor technology is set up. And these recordings, these data points need to be interpreted in a way. And that is where um, a sort of, yeah, an issue of transparency comes in. Um, uh, the example that I and Tim sometimes discussed was, um, for instance, you can imagine sitting in an exam hall as we all might have had been doing once the point time where we were studying is that you, you, there's a, a proctor, a, a human being sitting at the front of your row in the exam hall and you exchange a glance. And, um, you know, this, this glance is also, it also requires a kind of interpretation, like, is he looking at me? Like, have I done something or not? But there is a kind of immediacy um, in, in that exam hall where you are aware of the situation of how these how this particular proctoring in real life is happening. Whereas 
a part of the technology kind of um, cloaks or veils the ways um, how the data is interpreted, how um, uh, the data is sometimes even gathered and, and what those data points are. Um, and that is quite significantly different from, from an exam hall. Yeah, I was just going to come in there on another difference, which isn't necessarily going to be helped by someone having experience of online learning, which is that these conditions where you have to keep your body quite fixed and your your eyes quite rigid and um, your movements constrained are much more difficult for some people than others. And in fact, um, you might become more aware of some of these issues through online learning, or you might engage in online learning because you find certain things difficult, such as traveling to a campus. Um, but the fact is that the system is, is kind of built towards an idealized candidate who is able to sit and sit still and look at a screen for hours on end and concentrate in that form. And, and whether or not you're the sort of person that finds that easy or difficult doesn't have too much to do with your experience of online learning, I think. So um, there's another fundamental aspect here, which is that the data you're as a as a candidate you're being datafied in a particular way but those data are being interpreted according to an algorithm and the re the interpretation of the proctors that doesn't really take into account your particular um bodily situation or your your health condition or that sort of thing so it's not flexible in that way if that makes sense exactly yeah so Another thing that intrigued me during the article, something I want both of you to discuss a bit about is that the perspectives you discuss, both the post-phenomenological and the post-digital. And um, while both of them, they address things in a more vast and a more complex way. And uh, the topic that you chose was something which is uh, assessment, which is you know more considered as something which is more black and white traditionally, uh, traditionally or something you know that is more... Uh, objective. So what were the challenges that you faced in interpreting uh, assessment uh, in terms of philosophy and in terms of your frameworks? That's a good question. Um, this tension between objectivity and subjectivity is a good thing to think about. Um, and we do need to be a bit careful because we don't advocate allowing candidates or assessors to just do whatever they want. Um, but also, I, I'm not entirely comfortable, it'd be interesting to hear what Sven says, but I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that there's just a, con a continuum of subjectivity where some approaches are more subjective than others. Because I think some approaches can give the appearance of objectivity through standardization, tightly structured checklists and so on. But there are lots of different ways in which assessment can depart from objectivity and there's an inevitable messiness, I think, that seeps in as people reinterpret the intentions of assessment designers or they make the sorts of judgments that are required to deal with even the smallest amount of complexity. And also, I think we depart from objectivity because the tighter we lock down tasks and criteria of assessment, the more skewed they can become towards what suits some people and doesn't suit other people. Um, and that... The, the way that 
the assessment becomes skewed isn't necessarily representative of what's actually important in medical practice. So in online proctoring, the requirement to look at the screen um, or to not look away from the screen is maybe a more precise way of putting it. It, it can be profoundly uncomfortable for some people, but that doesn't have anything to do with their ability to be a good doctor. So I think in some ways, what we would probably argue for here is that we need to go beyond just tweaking assessment designs and implementation. So for example, still doing exams, but just making it a little bit um, a, a less tightly scripted and, and less tightly controlled, we probably would suggest re-examining our understandings of fairness and trust and other values, and then, then use that to think about how to integrate technology into assessment. I wonder if we could zoom out a little bit to to discuss the role of philosophy in this article. And I want actually, uh, Kamal, I want to ask you first, what is your impression uh, reading this article? Did you see something of the value of using a philosophical approach? For instance, you could also do um, uh, like a focus group study around proctoring or you could use a certain, I don't know, sociological theory or something to shine a light on it. Is there anything that you got from, yeah, this is this is what the philosophical approach was adding here? Yeah, I actually, uh, it was a new take. It was a fresh take. And I think the philosophy adds a lot more um, human perspective to the whole thing. Because like uh, Tim and Swin have mentioned, online proctoring, we generally consider it as, you know, a, a, a function of the machine or a function of uh, whatever software we're using. Yeah. So when when we involve philosophy into the whole thing, so we start discussing more abstract relationships, more relationships between the environment, between the technology, between uh, both not just uh, the examinee, but also the examiner. Uh, they've also mentioned in some places where uh, the proctoring was done by another person also, and how uh, this perspective was aspect, uh, affecting that person as well. So I think uh, including philosophy actually makes it more holistic. Uh, and uh, if I would want to do a focus group or if I, I see some potential things that we can actually as medical educationists explore further from this work that how we start a dialogue within each other about the way we view assessment and how we view it uh, as a more narrow thing, like we view it as only subjective and objective and as a function of only the assessor and the examinee. So instead, if we add philosophy into the equation, then we would be viewing it as part of the society, as part of uh, the environment, as part of the culture and the context in general. Because we can't just take one portion of medical education and you know put it outside and think that this is black and white. Like they've elaborated so nicely in the article that dialogue must be con uh, done honestly on this topic. And I think for that, we have to have a philosoph philosophical background or at least a philosophical framework, which we can use. So yeah, I think philosophy definitely adds that extra uh, punch and extra uh, bit to it to make it more holistic. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me also about the previous installment, which is actually called Black, White and Gray uh, about medical humanities, yes. right? About how a philosophical yes. perspective, which is often thought to be abstract, is actually putting you more in touch with society, including inequality and just the factual, uh, yeah, um, circumstances of the thing. So exactly, I wonder if uh, uh, maybe for this one for Sven, because um, 
I know you've read other installments in the series as well. And each installment has kind of a different relationship between philosophy and uh, medical education. And in this case, you're focusing on one specific technology as opposed to, for instance, the Bista and Van Braak installment, which is more about what is learning or what is education. So what kind of relationship is that between philosophy and uh, medical education? That's a, a tough question. That's what we do. We ask yeah, the yeah, tough that's what questions you do. here. You're doing your job wonderfully. <laughs> um, um, so uh, I'm thinking of how I u- or try to use sort of my philosophical background in in uh, my daily work and also the, with the work with Tim is trying to um, to come back to that word to that word uh, of entanglements, trying to de-entangle uh, and get rid of a sort of naive perspective that it is me who is just walking about in the world and taking an exam and I'm in control of my situation, et cetera, et cetera. Or, um, you know, the, the very dystopian, no, oh, technology is all going to ruin us and then technology will take over. And then uh, the, the human human agency is reduced to nil. Like, so, so th- those two extremes are a kind of easy positions to take in a sort of daily conversation about, con- uh, about technology. And, what I feel that philosophy, at least for me, tends to do is try to peel away this sort of um, very, um, uh, not simplistic, but uh, a sort of common way of perceiving the things around us or perceiving our own uh, professionality or perceiving our own uh, uh, um, education or, or our roles as, as um, students, for instance, in a medical program or teachers in a medical program and so forth. So it's like, for me, the philosophy is like a sort of handbrake on your own rather simplistic or sometimes even naive or um uh, interpretations and, and and viewpoints of the things you daily do. This doesn't mean that it perhaps gets. <laughs> um, uh, I don't want to dismiss those views. Those those sort of daily interactions that we have with the things around us are very important. But um, they sometimes, um, let's say, veil again um, that that uh, how things tend to function. That we that we step into simplistic um, uh, explanations of how things might work and that if you if you apply the brakes a little bit, a bit and step away from from those those um, interpretations then um, yeah you might be able to understand that there are different ways of relating to the technologies or the exams uh, um, or your role as a teacher or student uh, um, and, and that is I think um, the advantage to diversify those those perspectives a bit Tim, if you want to add something here. Oh, I can. Um, I, I guess I'm a naive philosopher. In, I'm not a philosopher. Um, but the way I see it is that philosophy gives us a way of looking beyond something. So looking beyond the usual, the common sense, like you said, or looking beyond the usual forms of ev- evidence. But it's still disciplined um you know you can't say whatever you want you could contrast it with something like speculative fiction where you are um you're just creating hypothetical scenarios to to help you think about something whereas um philosophy i think you have kind of some rules or some 
some frameworks that you use to 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 stay within certain bounds that also allows you to have meaningful conversations with other philosophers um so something that strikes me about philosophy as an outsider is the debates that go on in it are so um <laughs> i don't know so they're interesting um they're not like debates in other spheres because you can get you can look at a really large area or you can look at a minute area but there are certain rules to the way that these debates happen that can be good and bad i think um but if you like mario's own papers on reflective zombies and beetles and things you couldn't get to the insights that come out of those papers another way i don't think how would you go about gathering data to get to those conclusions so i think philosophy for me gives us another way of looking at something that that we might look at all the time but not see in that same way okay great maybe the last question is for each of you what do you hope that people will take away from this paper i'll stick to my point i guess um the the diversification of perspectives that as i said earlier um there is a, a kind of common sort of immediate way of understanding things when you're in, sort of confronted with something for the first time and 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 those initial um, dealings with something are very valuable um, but there are multiple ways in how things can function and um, I think I hope that uh, for instance you know taking this proctor examination as a as an example um in diversifying your thinking about you know there, there's a couple of additional perspectives that we can take into account uh, from the material perspectives to the historic or the economic uh, perspectives and i think that's what what the paper tries to suggest sort of more broadly and you know beyond um sort of proctor technology as the case study so to say um that that diversification of perspectives is a valuable thing um and uh in, in this case uh, we're not we're not looking for that um sort of a universal answer to right, this is how we need to assess things or this is how proctor technology should work or this is these are the definitive reasons to deny proctor technology use or embrace it and no like what i think that the paper does is okay let's 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 put a couple of these perspectives together and see how they function together and and which aspects you know become highlighted and which ones are are sort of pushed to the background and and those are the entanglements that i think uh, are very important and interesting to sort of you know get your hands on as a researcher in this case my my takeaway would be quite similar just to say that there is always there are always multiple technologies involved in assessment design even if there are no computers and that these technologies are part of um the way in which technology they have implications for how technology shapes the types of knowledge learning performance identity that are legitimized um in an in, in relation to institutions like medical education institutions and that the implications are not usually obvious so we need to do some tracing of the politics and the culture and the different entanglements that are going on so that we can really have a more meaningful account of the of of how our technological integrations are playing out and how we might 
um, seek to to feed into those and to think about the decisions that we make. And how about you, Kamal? Yeah, I agree with both of them. I, I really like the use of the word entanglements to explain the different uh, factors that are going to be interplaying in this situation. And I think that uh, the article, it actually serves as a starting point or as a thinking point where we need to think in our own context, in our own, own culture and political setup, as Tim said, about what is the purpose of uh, assessing students in the first place? And what are we trying to uh, inculcate a technology? But what are we trying to do with that? So whether uh, we have a particular objective or how we're using it and how will that specific technology interplay with that specific type of assessment. So all of that, we will have to explore it in a more holistic and you know together something in a more combined context. So for that, I, as they've said in the article, I think it's, it's very apt that we need to move over our reluctance to talk about these subjects and bring forth a critical dialogue or at least sit together and discuss that. What are we aiming for when we're using multiple technologies or even a single technology with a specific format of assessment? Because sometimes we get lost with the, the software or the hardware or you know with the more pedagogies that purely medical education uses and we miss out the philosophy behind the whole concept. Yeah, thank you all so much. Mario. I personally think that technology is one of the most important areas to pay attention to now especially because i mean this is one type of technology but the development is uh, speeding up and uh, we'll have another installment later in the series as well so i thought this was a great way to show how you how the really the details and the technical details really matter for the kind of values and the relationship that we have to our trainees yeah, thanks again for writing the article and uh, Komal for asking such wonderful questions. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.